Isaiah chapter 1. I've been thinking about this for many months now, and I just thought about starting this today because they called Spurgeon the prince of the preachers. But if you will, Isaiah is the prince of the prophets, isn't he? His prophecies are great. I didn't write down all the numbers, but Isaiah is constantly quoted in the New Testament. It presents Jesus Christ, uh, promises Jesus Christ. It tells about his suffering, his rejection. Many of your favorite verses in the Bible are from Isaiah, especially the Old Testament ones. They're wonderful. It's a wonderful book, and, and, uh, and I think it'll be a blessing to us. It'll take some time to get through this, but I think it'll be a blessing to you, and it's all right taking time to get through the Bible because we want to glean as much as we can. And every time you preach a passage in the scriptures, you'll go back over that and say, man, I missed this. I should have said that. And I don't know of any preacher who doesn't do that somewhere along the line, probably regularly, but what a great book this is. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They are gone away backward. It talks about their condition, talks about their backsliding. It's interesting to me. It says, uh, children that are corruptors, they've forsaken the Lord and provoked the Holy One. So not only have they forsaken Him, but they do the stuff that intentionally, that, that uh, certainly provokes the Holy You say, well, there's not much of a distinction. Well, there has to be a distinction because it's, both of them are mentioned in one verse. So they've forsaken the Lord. They've walked away. Some people can walk away, and it looks like maybe it's just physical, but it's not. They've not only walked away, but they are antagonistic to the things that God uh, deems uh, precious. And... Uh, and uh, we'll just look at that tonight, but we need to pray. Let's pray. Lord, bless this time together, and I pray for blessing and really spiritual victory in the lives of uh, needy folks at that uh, funeral that we go to. But Lord, would you bless our time tonight, together tonight? I pray that you bring our thoughts into captivity and help us to feed and feast on your word and help me to say the things you'd have me to say with your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> I like verse 1 where it says, He saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. It tells you he's primarily sent to the southern kingdom, and he's contemporary with Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We also see later on in the book that uh, Hosea and Micah and Nahum are all contemporaries of Isaiah. He probably had a ministry of about 70 years long. And some of the historians suggest that in Hebrews 11, when it says they were sawn asunder, they're talking about Isaiah. There's no proof of that. But historically, and maybe uh, um, uh, according to tradition, that Isaiah, that I mean, um, uh, the last one of these kings, uh, uh, not uh, Ahaz, that Ahaz, one of these kings, was so aggravated with him. No, it was Manasseh that Manasseh was so aggravated with him following uh, Hezekiah, his dad, that he had him sawn asunder. I don't know if that's true or not, but the Bible does verify that all the, all the prophets were rejected and killed. Their blood was all required of the generation of Israel. So to, to believe that he wasn't put to death is not consistent with Scripture, but he was contemporary with all these great men. And, and when I think of Isaiah, I immediately think of chapter 6 and verse 1, 
where it says this, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting on his throne. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, didn't he? And so that's one of the kings that Isaiah dealt with, that Isaiah ministered to. And some of these kings were good kings. Hezekiah was a good king. But you know what he watched is, under King Jotham, he watched the decline of the nation. Now, it's an ongoing thing. Doesn't it break your heart to see the decline of our country? To see the decline. I don't have the numbers here, but I looked up all the numbers of of the uh, different um, elections since 08. And it's really funny. It's really funny that um, uh, the bottom line is that Trump got more votes than any other president uh, in, in probably in history, but he got more votes. I think he got 71 million or something like that. And that was 10 million more than Hillary, uh, the previous election cycle. No, is that election cycle? Uh, he got so many votes, and um, Hillary got 61 or 63 million, and Obama got at the most 65 at the second election. He got fewer than he did the first election. And then we're to believe that uh, Biden got 81 million the following election. That it just kind of stretches your imagination, doesn't it? So we get to see much the same thing. This isn't a political thing, but you can't look at Isaiah without seeing the condition of a country, and our country's doing the same thing. The problem that we're up against is people are fighting against authority, and that authority starts with the Word of God. I would have preached on authority as well, because these different authorities are, are uh, try, uh, the government's trying to wrest control of all of them. The two authorities that the government has no business in is the church and the home. And that's where they're making their greatest inroads. That's where they're making their, their biggest attempts to change things. And that is against the church and the home. And they don't have any business there. And what does that do? That just violates authorities. It's trying to uh, uh, wrest the control, the authority that God gave to these other uh, authorities in the in you know home and, and government and church, to the other ones, trying to take that all and accumulate all the power themselves. And that's what's going on. Well, don't you know that he watched the same thing happen in that day? He watched the same thing happen. He saw the rise of the Assyrians and Babylon during his uh, ministry. He got to watch the Assyrians rise up in the north that eventually took Israel captive. And he watched the, uh, the um, Babylonians in the south uh, that would take Judah captive as well. And he watched them. He saw, he saw Syria and Samaria attacked under Ahaz. And Ahaz was one who embraced the idolatry of its days to such an extent that he was sacrificing his own sons in the fire. Now, we see some things that are horrible in our day, don't we? We see some things horrible. Steve was just telling about one of these riots that doesn't get the, all the publicity, but where guys just took a, a fellow on oxygen, and in a riot, they just use his oxygen tank to beat him to death. That's in this country. That's what that was probably going on in that day too. It's just a lawless uh, rebellion against God, and this great man kept his sweetheart toward the people, kept his faithfulness toward God, kept speaking the truth that was not popular, really saw limited, if any, results, and then was put to death for his uh, efforts. And he got to see all this stuff. And is it any wonder that he talks about the coming kingdom? 
That's chapter two, isn't it? Where the lion lies down with the lamb. He talks about uh, the Messiah coming, Isaiah 53. He speaks of John the Baptist. These are all places quoted, cited in the New Testament. So he, he got to watch Syria and Samaria attack under Ahaz. Ahaz called out for Assyrian aid. Imagine that. Ahaz called out for Assyrian aid. Isaiah confronted him and urged him instead to trust God. You know what was the bottom line of that? Look at Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Uh, certainly familiar. This is where he's convincing him, you shouldn't be asking them to do that. In Isaiah 7, 14, it says, there, uh, that's five, Isaiah 7, 14, you can probably quote it, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Now what's the context of that? He's trying to call the Assyrians in to help him because he's afraid they're going to get exterminated. He says, no, 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 no. God's not done with our nation. It's our nation that's going to produce Messiah. And then the other verse would be in 9-6, which you know, for unto us a, a son is given, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. These are promises that God has given to Israel, so they're not going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Do you think Israel's going to be wiped off the map today? Absolutely not. They're going to do everything they can to wipe them off the face of the earth. But Isaiah witnessed all these things, and when he confronted uh, Ahaz, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Hezekiah was able to rid the land, and he watched this, rid the land of idolatry. He was a great king. And under Hezekiah, God destroyed 185,000 soldiers, didn't he? 185,000 of them, 2 Kings 19. But you know, it didn't transform the hearts and minds of the people of, Israel, of Judah. It didn't transform them. They were given good kings and they didn't respond. They were given kings that took away idolatry and they just put their idol worship on hold or did it secretly. It didn't transform their hearts. Why? Because the distinction between the modernist or the liberal and the Bible believer is we know that the answers are not in man. The Bible says that. It's not in man that to direct his steps, is it? We know that the answers come from God, and when you refuse to acknowledge God, refuse to call upon God for his wisdom, you're hopeless. You're, all you can replace God with is a heavy hand that you're not qualified to, to wield. And that's what was going on in his day. But Isaiah is the fullest Old Testament picture of Christ. In chapter 40, it speaks of the verses that John the Baptist fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 40. Um, the anointing of Jesus was spoken of in Isaiah 61. These are all places that you see come to fruition in the New Testament. His lowly status was 715, right after uh, a virgin shall conceive. Uh, and Isaiah 53 too, his lowly status He's despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Wouldn't that be an odd thing for these people of Israel to embrace? That's probably why they didn't embrace it. They wanted a king that would come and lead them visibly and really do their fighting for them and just let them share in the glory. Instead, King Jesus knows our hearts need to be changed from the inside out. And what are all those Old Testament promises to Israel? That God would write his law on their hearts. You know... We're not to keep. Uh, we're not saved by keeping the law. 
We're certainly not judged by keeping the law, but on my heart, I don't want to take my, name, my Savior's name in vain, do you? Hey, much of what is precious to us uh, fulfills those, and, and there's no rule, no law against the fruit of the Spirit, is there? And so uh, you see his lowly status, you see lots of others, but you see also Israel's rejection of her Messiah. Israel's rejection. So they're guaranteed to endure to produce the Messiah, but even those promises don't stay their rebellion and they don't accept him when he comes. And that's so sad. He was rejected of men, Isaiah 53, and I've got Isaiah 49, verses 5 to 7 as well, and that God's word was go to the Gentiles in 42 and 49 and 45. I mean, these are all foretold in the book of Isaiah. Before Jesus came the first time, it was prophesied where he'd be born, uh, that it would be a miraculous birth, that he would be despised and rejected of men, that he would one day sit and rule on a throne. And many years in between the first coming and the second coming, but all of the things are spelled out there. That he'd have a herald that uh, prepared the way for Jesus coming. And the way to, for uh, Jesus to make a difference in your heart is repentance. John the Baptist preached the baptism of repentance. Repentance. Wouldn't it be nice? I mean, I don't even read the headlines anymore that, um, you know, they're prosecuting both sides of the aisle and nothing comes of it. Nothing comes of it. You know, and I don't even want to get into all that, but nothing comes of it. Why? We have a people so partisan, and I don't think all of them necessarily are, but they just want power and they'll do anything to get it. Do you think it was any different in this day? It's Isaiah that says uh, children are their oppress oppressors and women rule over them. Every time Hillary says a threat to our democracy, if this were a democracy, she'd be president. Do you understand what I'm saying? She got uh, about 700,000 more votes than Trump did. It's not a democracy. She's lying to you. Whenever they say that, we're not a democracy yet. A democracy is that mob rule over in Seattle. It's all those things. Um, it foretells Israel's rejection and that the gospel would be a blessing to the Gentiles. Aren't you so glad for that? Do you realize there's something in Isaiah for all of us? And there are going to be some passages you look forward to. I am thoroughly going to enjoy every bit of study of the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to enjoy speaking it because it's a blessing to look at what God wrote down. And I didn't write the name, uh, the someone have a Schofield Bible. It'll tell you in the margin about when this was. I th I'm not, I can't remember. Um, huh? 760 B.C. This was 760 years before Jesus came. And he's laying out for us how Jesus would be born, where he would be born, his rejection and his appearance, his visage, and, and the results of that rejection. He's laying out all of that stuff for us. And I am sure that he saw in the future what we study to try to find, don't you think? Don't you think? And then you see the sufferings and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Uh, 
don't you long for the day when Jesus will get the praise on this earth that he deserves? Won't that be something? I refer to a lot in Zechariah 14 where all the nations have to come up to Jerusalem or they won't have rain on their land. That means Jerusalem, that they're trying to destroy and the nations will surround Jerusalem and the nations despise Jesus, want to rid the world of Jews completely and that's not bigotry or anything. That's not genocide. And people swallow that stuff. But one day they'll bow before uh, King Jesus on a throne in Jerusalem and they will have to go and mingle with the Jews that they've despised. It is no wonder that when Satan is loosed for a season, he gets some unredeemed, unregenerate people that have been bottling up the anger and hatred and rebellion in their hearts for a thousand years and they'll try to throw off King Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what, I just look forward to the idea of peace. I talked to someone the other day, and well, it was Mike over in Washington. I said, you know, OMAC was a great place to grow up. I could, and probably up here was uh, years ago, it was a great place. Why? Man, everybody in the neighborhood knew your dad. And man, if you messed up, they told him. It was a day when if the principal said, your son did this, your dad wouldn't, wouldn't say, my son wouldn't do that. Mine certainly didn't say that. It was a day different than today's, wasn't it? And I, Isaiah had to list, all, see all that stuff. So you see, it's the fullest Old Testament picture of Christ, but it's also a great uh, uh, preview of the second coming. Look at Isaiah 9. And you know the verses, Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And I've said before, the child was born and 33 years later he was given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, that's 2,000 more years. So you see a span of uh, 2,030 years in that one verse. Just one phrase after another. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now that's future, isn't it? There are those that expect, I looked at these distinctions too, there are those people that expect that, that Jesus will come back after the millennium, that mankind and his abilities are going to usher in peace on earth and will invite Jesus to come and reign. Can you imagine how drunk you'd have to be to believe that? How crazy is that? There are people that believe that. No, man has messed up everything. I, I've maybe mentioned to some folks in Washington that they mess up everything they touch. Well, man in general has messed up everything we touch, haven't we? Think about what Israel was like. They got to go and pick out a house. I, I see these, these uh, videos of Bob Hope's house. I think I saw that this morning. And they look kind of neat up, up above the valley in Los Angeles, I think it is. And you see all these beautiful homes and all that. What happens if God gave you the land of Israel and said, go take your pick? Well, I want to live in the country with a nice farm around it. You pick one. And you go and move in. Your wife hangs pictures on the wall or whatever she does. Maybe they put pottery on shelves. I don't know. But it says the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. Both of those words are great, aren't they? How in the world can you beat the word wonderful for my Savior? You wonder when you look at him. 
How could he save a soul like me? Why would he save a soul like me? His name is wonderful. His name is counselor. Yeah, we mess stuff up. We get to a place where we don't know where to turn, and he's our counselor then, isn't he? The mighty God. Why would you not understand that the mighty God was going to be despised and rejected of men? It's all in the book of Isaiah. How, why wouldn't you be able to put that together? The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And by the way, the everlasting Father, how can the Son be the Father? Because it's a triune God. It's a triune God. And uh, verse 7, Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Verse 11 that's a great verse right there. But verse 11, Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and join his enemies together, the Syrians before. What you're going to see is uh, every attempt to put him down, but uh, his kingdom is going to be a kingdom of peace, isn't it? He'll put down all strife, all kind of rebellion, and so many others. Isaiah 59, Isaiah 63, it speaks about our coming the second time of Jesus Christ. And I read through that Monday, I think it was, the book of Revelation, where uh, he comes with uh, thousands of thousands, that's a million, what is it, a hundred thousand, thousands, hundreds of thousands, anyway, hundreds of millions of people on white horses, comes back to set up his kingdom. Won't that be wonderful to be on that horse? Won't that be wonderful? Chapter 2, look at chapter 2. That's a great messianic chapter. Uh, actually, it's a great millennial chapter. Chapter 2 and verse uh, 4. Uh, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against na nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't that just a, a verse that when you read, you sigh? I know I read General Patton's book. He said, uh, you love war. No, I hate war. That means when I go to war, I'm going to prosecute it as quickly as I can and make them lose as much as possible so we can end it. Oh, those are my words. They'll not learn war anymore. How can you resist someone who can put 185,000 dead in one night with one angel, one angel. It's the increase of peace, there'll be no end. And you see that in verse four, but look at verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord, for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Today, Holy Spirit indwells the believer. And the Holy Spirit from the book of John lifts up Jesus Christ at all times. Isn't that wonderful? The Holy Spirit of God is indwelling you, telling you, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Holy Spirit is telling you, just trust Jesus. And I mean, he's saying that to saints, but he points people, sinners to Christ too, doesn't he? But in that day, everyone will exalt Jesus. Everyone, and so many others we could go into.
The first 39 chapters is a natural division. The first 39 chapters are before the Babylonian captivity. And what it is is uh, the condemnation of sin, the sin that was rampant in the, in the land. As a whole, it's written to Judah and Jerusalem. And I think it was 45.22 I wanted you to see. I'll see if that's right. 45.22. And uh, because, again, and you might remember this is one of my favorite passages, if I'm right on this one. 45 and verse 22, it says, um, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. That's the verse that got Spurgeon saved. A deacon stood up and stammered his way through that verse. Look unto me and be ye saved. And Spurgeon, who grew up in a Christian home, his dad and granddad were pastors. And he realized that he had to look unto Jesus to be saved. Hey, those are some great verses, aren't they? But as a whole, it's written to Judah and Jerusalem. But the last uh, 27 verses, chapters, are largely due, uh, speaking of the uh, millennium that's yet to come, but do you understand here that even the book of Isaiah mirrors the Bible? There are 66 chapters in the Bible. I mean, 66 books in the Bible. The first 39 are called the Old Testament. There's a natural division there. The last books in the Bible are the New Testament. It adds up to 66 books, and so you have a microcosm of it. And it's such an obvious um, distinction between Isaiah 39 and 40 that the scoffers or the professional liars tell you it's two different authors. No, it's Isaiah. It's Isaiah. Oh, deuteral Isaiah or something like that. They come up with some fancy words. No, it's Isaiah because Jesus never made a distinction. So for 50, 450 or 500 years in the kingdom, the kings were all failures. Oh, there were, there were some exceptions. Hezekiah was a good king. But by and large, the kings were failures, and they couldn't legislate uh, a change in people's hearts, could they? They could put away the, the idol worship and all that, but that doesn't change people's hearts. They had some good kings, but that didn't turn the kingdom to Jesus, did it? The priesthood had failed, so much so that even after the captivity, they come back to the land of Israel and they got together and conspired to put away Jesus Christ, to reject him uh, as a body. The prophets were ignored. You know, every time you get discouraged, you realize, you realize that most of the prophets never had a convert. Many missionaries in new lands don't have converts for years. The one that went to China first, I think it was, I think it was China, went there first. It was seven years before anyone darkened his door. And you know, commonly on mission fields today, they, they want to send a report back how many people were baptized. And it's great to see people saved and baptized, yeah. But it's almost sometimes like they want, they want to send that back so that You'll keep supporting them and all that. You can't really speak to their motivation, but I know this. It, however much truth there is to that, who would have supported those missionaries in China? Who would have supported them? 
Who would have supported David Livingston, who disappeared, as far as we know, for most of his years? No, you have a heart to see people saved. And, and when we decry our generation, where people don't want to go to the work that it takes to minister, it's a sad thing, isn't it? The other side of this is the work that goes into being a minister and the burdens you bear. So the prophets were ignored. You see the same arrogance in humanism today. The same arrogance in humanism. So there's so many parallels between that day and ours. But then just briefly look as we start this book, look at the vision that he had, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, I just like that vision. Sometimes the prophets start out with a burden. But you know what, was, what the book of Isaiah comes from? A vision that God showed to him. We could go and look at the different visions. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. That's in Isaiah 6. And his response, woe is me from undone. A man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the king. These people that claim to have seen Jesus and he's some warm, fuzzy thing, they didn't see Jesus. Remember, the devil transforms himself into an angel of light. So he had a vision for Judah. You know, if you know the word of God, you'd have the same vision for America that God gives us for that millennium, wouldn't you? You'd want everyone to have the word of God hidden in their hearts. You'd want everyone to be singing praises and lifting up Jesus Christ. Now, that'll happen in the millennium. I suspect that was a vision he had. I suspect he had the vision of Jesus coming. He recorded it. And he recorded with wonder the fact that God would take upon him human flesh. And that he would walk on streets here, dusty streets and get weary and hungry and be despised and rejected and bear the sins of the world. And that inspires that verse we looked at, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He had visions of this. I wonder how clearly he saw Jesus high and lifted up. I wonder how clearly he saw how he was despised and rejected. I suspect quite clearly, don't you? It was a vision. There's something interesting about serving the Lord and sacrificing and the burdens you bear because God brings you uh, close to him where you see stuff that maybe casual people don't see. Well, he saw a vision. That's what motivated him. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. He saw a vision, and that vision was the very words of God spoken. God has spoken. And I told, we turned to Isaiah 2, look at, no, I think it's Isaiah 11, that's what I want. Let's see if I'm right. It's either 2 or 11. Yeah, look at uh, chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And you can read all that. But look at uh, verse 5. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, 
and the leopard shall lie down with a kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. When it says the vision of Isaiah, he had a vision of that, didn't he? Imagine a world where a lion and a lamb would lie down together, or a child would lead them. Imagine that. He saw visions like that. If you saw what could be, wouldn't you have a burden for what is? And that's what starts this out, the vision that he had, a vision of, of um, the grandeur and glory of what God had in store for them. God had spoken. Um, Israel had a history of God's blessings. The problem with not trusting the Lord is then you don't have a history of God blessing you with provision where God alone knew your need. That's wonderful, isn't it? A history of deliverances. Sometimes they were delivered, even though they were still in idolatry, but they were delivered because God's a merciful God. And it seemed like the, the slightest turn toward God would bring about God's blessings and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Now, when 9-11 happened, people came to church and it lasted about three weeks. Why? They're fearful for the immediate and they care nothing for the permanent. That's very sad, isn't it? What we experience today is no different than most, probably all the other ages of the world. Hey, if you had a vision, what would Adam's vision have been? What he left behind. And he deals in the next chapter with the murder of one son by his brother. And I suspect those would have been 930, wasn't it 930 years of watching the fruit of his rebellion? Oh, that would be awful, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be awful? Well, so glad to see God's mercy. And not only had God spoken, but the people had failed. It says, for the Lord has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children. They have rebelled against me. They've rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner. In other words, they're dumber than animals. I remember I was talking to my friend who raised Appaloosas over in Washington. And it made me think of that when I said, yeah, we had quarter horses when I was at the camp. And Rusty and Arrowhead were two full brothers a year apart. They were both racehorses, retired from the racetrack. And they, you could tell why they were racehorses. They didn't like another horse ahead of them. And you held on for dear life when? When you turned from going away from the barn to going back to the barn. They knew who fed them. They knew where the water was. And that's all it's talking about with the ox. The ox knows who feeds it. The ox knows who feeds it. In other words, the people of Israel were dumber than animals. Dumber than animals. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Not knowing is, is kind of simple. Well, uh, they, I, I forgot, I don't know. But even worse, they didn't even consider it. Why would this no-account people have such a beautiful and magnificent land? Why would this people that was continually in rebellion against what the prophets preached for, 
Why, why were they granted life to live day to day? They didn't even consider it. One of the most important things we train our children to do is not just to consider the end of our actions, but to consider the fruit of our actions on other people. That's called empathy. Empathy. They have rebelled. The Mosaic law called for the death of the rebel son. Called for the death of the rebel son. And yet, uh, God spared David, didn't he? And rebellion was all over this chapter. And it says the children have rebelled against him. They, called, were, uh, they, they were uh, sentenced really to death under the law. And yet God gives them this other chance to repent. And he holds out the prospect of God writing his law in their hearts. Isn't it so sweet that if God's law is in our heart, then we think like he does. We feel like he does. We have the, we have the, um, uh, what's important, the priorities that he has. When God's law is written in our hearts, the people have failed. God nourished these children. He made a nation out of them. He gave them a land, gave them prophets and priests, gave them the word of God, and they rebelled anyway. The Mosaic law was death, the older son. And here, this is, they're dumber than cattle. They're dumber than cattle. Look at verse 4. Ah, sinful nation. The whole nation's sinful. A people laden with iniquity. Now, if you read over that, you know, you have the image of that. Laden means that you're bearing a burden. You know what the vision of Isaiah would be? That wasn't it the psalmist that said, he daily loadeth us with benefits? The children of Israel were in rebellion. Instead of enjoying the, uh, the benefits that God loads us with, they were laden with iniquity. In other words, iniquity already is a bad thing, but it is a horrible thing that, that presses you down farther and farther and farther. A seed of evildoers. One generation after another of evil. Children that are corruptors. It's bad enough when adults corrupt, but children corrupt. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They are gone away backward. It's a sinful nation. Bearing burdens of sin, they were too dumb to know their own burdens. They were guilty of the wrong kind of training. And the children were corrupt. They'd forsaken the Lord. Now, Nora and I were talking about, she got a, she's pretty excited. She got a, a little chorus book for children. Has she shown that to you yet? And she said, this is really neat. And she, and I'm not familiar with kids' songs particularly. I know some. And she said, yeah, the CEF were the greatest ones. And, uh, and I said, okay, like what? And then she said, oh, this little light of mine, you all know that song. Well, now, here's some new songs that are written with the same spirit. And you know what's wonderful is 
when something different happens. Um, routine is uh, in, an opponent of life and life, life, life and his blessings, isn't it? A, uh, a rut is a grave with both ends removed. And why do marriages fail? Sometimes it's just uh, routine instead of that affection. And that's what was being trained into the hearts of the children. You know why it's so important to love our wives? So the kids know what that looks like. They can identify that. Our wives love the husbands. So the kids know. By the way, so the sons know how to treat their mother and a wife. And the daughters know how to be a wife and treat their husbands. They had forsaken the Lord. They provoked him to anger. And they've gone backwards. They've gone backwards. That's just a statement for backsliders. Ask yourself, has your service and affection for the Lord cooled? We're supposed to increase more and more. In other words, we're not supposed to go backwards. I know our, our abilities are somewhat hindered by years that add up. But that just means your affection and your joy and your cause for rejoicing, they might be a little more inward now than they once were. I don't know, it could take different forms. But boy, we don't want to backslide, do we? I want him to love him more every day. I want to think more on him every day. They've gone backwards. People today actively pursue the flesh. Because the flesh is everywhere around you. And what a great way for the devil to deter people from serving the Lord. I wonder how many in the final analysis, I don't know if we'll ever know this, they were called to be preachers and they let the flesh get in the way and they never did it. I wonder. I have a book in my library by, well, Phil Schuler gave it to me. It was his brother. And his brother was slow to get saved. That was, now I can't even think of his name. Um, he, uh, his brother, Phil said, his brother was a guy that had such a magnetic personality and such a great ability to speak. He could command an audience, much in the way the early days of Billy Graham. He said he could have turned the world, the country around. He says, I'm convinced that could have happened. His dad was a famous preacher fighting fighting uh, Bob Schuler, But he had a problem with his nerves, and some friends said, hey, if you just drink alcohol, it'll quiet your nerves. And one of them, I don't know what it is, you can't even smell it. And he went into alcoholism and died a drunk. He didn't mean to do that. But you know, it's best just to stay faithful, isn't it? And um, it's uh, backslide is a terrible thing. You know, today we get people that think that indulgence is the thing to do instead of being trained. In other words, God's loving care is rejected. And there comes a point that all that remains is uh, judgment on the land, in this case, captivity. They were given the land, they violated the contract, and God took the land back. 
for 70 years. I mean, I'm almost 70. I, I could live through that. But he took the land back. Man, that's all sad, isn't it? That's, that's the preview of this wondrous book. I really look forward to it. I hope you do. Let's pray.